Boardwalk Audio Podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing. This is the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. The best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Joey Clift, who you definitely know from being a major sketch writer in Los Angeles. He's been on sketch teams at all the major theaters in L.A., and is very knowledgeable about doing live sketch. We talk about the differences in sketch between places like UCB, The Pack, I.O., and other theaters. So if you're local to L.A., this will be a great podcast for you. So here is Joey Clift. Uh, Joey, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? Um, I'm from Washington State. I grew up in a small town called Marysville. It's like about 45 minutes north of Seattle on the I-5 corridor. Okay, were you, uh, was there like a big comedy scene there? Oh, no, it's like, it's such a, like, it's, it's like an agricultural town, so I feel (laughs) like the, like, we were lucky to have like a bar karaoke night as opposed to like, like a stand-up night, I would have to like drive 45 minutes south to Seattle to like even do an open mic, so like, uh, that's before I got into more like writing writing, when I was like... A teenager in early twenties, I would like drive to Seattle like a couple of times a month just to do open mics. So it was always like it was always like an odyssey to even test out comedy. Mm-hmm. How, how old were you when you started uh, getting into comedy? I guess. Um, I mean, that's like a weird question because I sort of uh, I started doing like things that I thought were funny probably when I was about sixteen. Um, but for me, what that largely meant was like, I like hosted a lot of like talent shows and things like that at my high school. And, um, I was like the weather guy for our morning announcements <laughs> and like just the weather guys always like kind of a wackadoo guy. Yeah, so yeah. like, I, uh, like I started doing that and I started getting kind of known around the high school as just being like the wacky weather guy. And then that kind of led me to think. Oh, being a small market weather guy is like I want to do comedy, and the way to do that is to be a small market weather guy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like uh, when I was sixteen, I started doing that, and then I uh, um, went to community college. And um, while I was doing that, I like kind of volunteer mm-hmm. DJ at a local radio station with like sort of the entire laser focus being all of this will help me be a weather guy. Wow. So, um, like, I took like atmospheric science classes and really like tried to get knowledgeable about that stuff. I would even like watch I would watch like the local news like specifically to watch the weather guy segments to take notes on just like hand gestures they made wow. and stuff like that like I really um, really like put a lot of work in and figured that was my career path so then when I graduated from community college I transferred to a place called Washington State University that has um, the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication which is um, it's like one of the it, at the time it was like one of the top 
kind of broadcast news schools in the country. And um, while I was doing that, I guess I guess that I could I like kind of dipped more into writing comedy, but it was like it was four segments for college TV shows. So like I hosted like a like it was like a relationship advice segment for the dating show, and then um, like uh, like I hosted like one of their kind of like late night shows, mm-hmm. and then um, my I guess you could say big turn was. Um, I am a big fan of the Beastie Boys, and I wrote a college TV show that was... Are you familiar with the Beastie Boys Sabotage Music video at all? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, um, I basically... It's like, I basically wrote... If, like, if that was a TV show, we okay. wrote that show, and, like, I started in it with, one, with my friend Pat, and um, it it's, like, funny, because, like, that music video is a pastiche of a specific type of right. show, and we were a pastiche of that music video, so it's, like... A copy of a copy of a copy uh-huh. of a copy, but um, it won like a crazy like nationwide college television award for comedy. Oh wow! Like it was it won like best comedy for mm-hmm. the National Broadcasters Incorporated, whatever. And um, like when I got when I heard about this, I was thinking to myself, oh, this really cool trophy where we beat out people from Ithaca and Harvard and stuff like that will look really cool on my small market <laughs> weather guy desk in Post Falls, Idaho. <laughs> And, I think uh, it's the first time someone said Ithaca and Harvard in the same <laughs> sentence. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, like all, all hits. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, so like I had that mentality. I graduated, and all of my professors separately pulled me aside. All my kind of you know major like kind of finishing professors pulled me aside and said like you should really not do weather. You should do comedy. <laughs> so um, at the last minute, I switched an internship. Uh, I was doing like a study abroad in London as sort of my like ooh, you know my I'll get a whole lot of student loan debt out and do a crazy thing because mm-hmm. it's the only time I'm be able to do it. And um, I switched an internship from a CBS radio internship to like for radio news to um, like interning for a, pa- a place called Baby Cow Productions that created the Mighty Boosh. Oh and, wow! Uh, Mighty okay. Boosh and like St- uh, like what is it like Alan Partridge mm-hmm. and um, like a lot of stuff like that. Um, uh, like Steve Coogan's kind of the, uh-huh. the co-guy in charge of it and um, yeah like I was still on the fence even at that point as to like if I was going to go into mm-hmm. like kind of uh, broadcast news or comedy but they were just like they were so nice and sort of the picture that they painted of working in comedy like it was just it resonated with me like um, a guy named Henry Normal he was the co-EP with Steve Coogan He's like a like a legendary cult like British comedy guy. He like opened for the band Pulp doing like comedy bits in like the eighties and stuff. And um, like he basically laid it out as like like he explained to me that he worked in an office until he was like twenty five, just like you know doing a very boring job. And then he saw the movie Animal House, and then he realized that people were having fun for a living. So he quit his job like moved like lived on his sister's couch and um basically just uh you know like slowly but surely did comedy and like you know i think it took it he said that it took him like i think a year or two of writing before he even like did an open mic like holding the sheet of paper in front of him and reading jokes and um yeah like i guess that that path just like the idea of you can have fun for a living sort of clicked for me and resonated for me more than you know being a Reporter or weather guy in a small town was. So I, you know, called in, you know, University Alumni Connections and luckily just, you know, people that I'd worked with on college TV shows and 
like there were you know a couple of interviews that I had in Los Angeles, so I packed and you know packed all of my stuff into my 1986 Honda Accord that burned oil. Drove it from Washington to to Los Angeles, and instead of sleeping on my sister's couch, I slept on my brother's couch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so like you know, comedy for me was sort of a it was a long path for me to realize that that's what I was that that's what I wanted to do all along. Mm-hmm. And then once I kind of realized that's what I wanted to do, which I was like a little bit older, I was probably like twenty five or twenty six when I was like, oh yeah, I should do comedy. After ten years of doing it in various forms and not knowing that that's what I was doing. And um, now I've built the empire that you see before <laughs> you. Uh, that was a long answer to a short question. No, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there, though. Uh, so when you, so let's go back. So when you're doing weatherman stuff, what, what kind of bits were you doing like, as a weatherman? Okay, so a lot of what I did was I was just really high energy, so I would basically, like... I would, I mean, I, like, would dance while doing the weather report. I would, like, jump and, like, when we would have, like, uh, like a high-pressure system coming in, I would, like, I would like jump and slam dunk it in. So it's, like, my hand would kind of go along with the high-pressure system. And then, you know, it's high school, so, like, what groundbreaking comedy are you going to do in high school? I just, like, threw in, like, catchphrases and references to, like, teachers and, like, you know, fellow students and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, it was a, it was a big high school. We had, like, 3,000 students, I think, at the time. So, like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, like, it's not hard to be funny in high school. <laughs> and was it all, like, well-received by people? I mean, it's it's that thing where, like, high school students are all kind of in an age where they're jaded. So, like, I would get people that would say, that's the funniest thing ever. I love it. Keep doing it. I would get teachers that would tell me that they would watch the morning announcements and then turn it off immediately after my weather report because they're like, eh, we don't even watch anymore. Like, and then, but then I would also get students that would say like, that's so stupid, but that's like, you're a high school student. Right. You know, it's like, but it's still, it's something that everybody had an opinion about, which was, which, you know, tends to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long as it's not a universally bad opinion. Right, right. And so during this time, you started doing uh, open mics too. No, that was a that was a little bit later. Okay, um, I was while I was doing that, I was like hosting talent shows and stuff, and um, I would do bits like I would like I would dress up like uh, like you know like using um, like using the Beastie Boys for example. I would like dress like a guy from Sabotage and then like karaoke the song Sabotage, but like in a theater, and I would really like act it out and do like a theatrical performance of it. Or like, you know, the I feel so hack saying this at this point, but this was before it got popular, like Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Mm. I would like do a huge theatrical performance of it. Like by the end of it I would basically be like I would have ripped all of my clothes off and I'd be covered in water and stuff. Um uh yeah, so I was that guy. <laughs> and, and and during all this, are you like uh watching like lots of comedy shows or I mean um I'm the type of person where I was more a student of the game in like out of life necessity than necessarily like going through the entire SNL catalog. So like, um, let's see, I'm gonna get real, real. Um, so my, my parents divorced when I was like eight years old and I was like raised basically by a single mother. Like my, both of my parents are great and they're really supportive of my comedy career, but she's, she was just somebody where she was like, you know, working a couple of jobs. So there wasn't like really a lot of like, I guess, oversight on what I watched and what I did 
as like you know a tween slash teenager so there are some people that go in the direction of like hard drugs with that and instead what i did was i would just like record the simpsons each week on vhs and then watch it 20 times yeah so i feel like and that's like not me doing homework that's just to entertain myself so like i feel like that that and like staying up late and watching like conan's late night and like Mm -hmm. kind of all the all the touchstones that i feel like a lot of people um kind of came up with of like you know golden age simpsons conan like some snl like uh you know uh i feel like my first thing that i watched that like really told me like I'm laughing at something that I don't think everybody is laughing at is um, specifically the state's sketch Sideways House Family, which um, the premise of it is it's a sitcom about a family that lives in a house that's on its side. But Tom Lennon, who's the guy who wrote it and is the main guy in it, is like playing it very straight. So he's just like, yeah, his family's like, why do we live in a sideways house? And he's like, I told you, I haven't gotten a promotion yet. Like his son, like his, the bathroom doors on the ceiling, like his son falls out of it and like breaks his neck on like a counter. And he like cradles his son while screaming, curse this sideways house. Like, it's just very, it's like, it's very dark, but like in a way that's, you know, it's like, it plays on the clash of like, treating something that would be horrible as something that's like a sitcom, you know, like right, a multi-cam. Yeah. People don't talk about the state enough. That's like such a great show. It feels kind of forgotten almost. I mean, I think it's just, it's just one of those shows where like a lot of members of the state are seen as, are seen as cult figures. So like, you know, I think that David Wayne is somebody that can do no wrong in a lot of people's eyes. Um, you know, Tom Lennon and Ben Garant, they're um, like, you know, they're, the highest paid screenwriters in Hollywood, basically. Um, like, they're... I feel like what happened with them is, like, it wasn't... Like, uh, at the time that it aired, comedy or uh, MTV wasn't quite as popular as it was... as Comedy Central was when Reno 911 was airing. Like, I feel like the state didn't quite hit the cultural chord that, like, Reno 911 did. Mm, like, there wasn't, like, a state movie... Um, right. I mean, you could say that Wet Hot American Summer is essentially a state movie, mm-hmm. but, you know, Reno, Reno 911, there was, like, a Reno 911 movie, mm-hmm. and um, that's largely the same guys, so, like, I feel like that's just the one that people tend to remember. Interesting. But the state's good. It's, like, what I like about the state is that they were, like, they were theater school students. They, this was before UCB, there wasn't, like, a Second City or Groundlings or an IO in New York, so, like if you watch the show you can kind of watch them figure out sketch comedy <laughs> like um you know it's like it's little things like i've listened to a lot of interviews with them and if you watch the dvd commentary of it like they'll talk about like oh yeah like one like you know one of them figured out like tom lennon or whoever figured out oh if you have one weird thing and you heighten it that's way funnier than if you have 20 weird things <laughs> And then everybody's like, oh, that is interesting. Or, like, just how to do buttons or whatever. Wow, they, they said that on the commentary? I think so. I think wow. that they were talking about, like, something to that effect of, like... That's crazy. Of, like, they didn't know what they were doing, mm-hmm. but, like, it was this cool thing where, like, somebody would figure something out and they would just tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, I, I feel like if you're listening to this and you, like, want to write sketch comedy, like, you know, the, a, f- the, a few great touchstones to watch are, like, Key and Peele, um the state and like you know the original mr show run like the mr show is like 
they were all kind of masterclass when they were doing it. They were all like former SNL writers or whatever. The state, they were like a little bit greener, but there was a lot of enthusiasm there. And, you know, there's like also, there's just some things where like, uh, have you seen much of the state? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, uh, I thought I saw most of it, but maybe not. Have you seen Porcupine Racetrack? Yeah. So like yeah. Porcupine Racetrack, um, if you haven't watched it, um, it's basically, it's a musical about a bunch of people that hang out around a racetrack where they race porcupines. And it's like, it's not a sketch that you really laugh at, <laughs> but it's one of the best sketches I've probably ever seen because of just the like both feet in commitment to the mm. idea of we're doing a dramatic musical about a racetrack where people race porcupines. And like, it's like, how does that heighten? Like, mm-hmm. I guess that you could say that it heightens by like just further specifics of, of the musical genre. So like there's, you know, there's uh, the rich couple that's like singing and then there's like the very sad, like soliloquy of the guy that like really needs his porcupine right. to win. Like it kind of, it just, it checks all those boxes of uh, just musical specifics. And, you know, it's like you could say that that's how that heightens, but it's also like, oh, it's just a fun song about porcupines, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're, uh, you go to college and you stay abroad in England and you work at uh, Baby Cow Productions. Yeah. Uh, what's that like? Like when you go there, I guess you, you what are you, what are you thinking when you go there? Did you, did you know of the Mighty Boosh and all those shows yet? Um, so I was like, I feel so like, I feel so lame talking to friends of mine that are big Mighty Boosh fans. I went there, like I went there aware of the Mighty Boosh and like, I'd seen a couple of bits here and there. Like this was around, this was around when it was airing on Adult Swim. So like, it's like literally while I was there, like a week after I started, one of their uh, main directors flew back because the Boosh had just done their first tour of the States and they did like Comic-Con. That was a huge thing. And they were doing it for like a Boosh documentary that maybe got released. I, don't I think, think I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like that got released, yeah. but it's like they were just coming home a week after I started from finishing that. And that's like right after the Boosh kind of exploded in the States. So like the talk in the office was just like how in like they did not expect the Boosh to be this huge in the States. Like they were telling me like they did an autograph signing at tower records and like, you know, like the mighty Boosh moon. It's like literally just a mm-hmm. guy takes a pie and puts it on his face mm-hmm. and then takes it off and he's got whipped cream on his face and he's the moon. Like, uh, they thought it was really funny leaving tower records, have the street, the sidewalk was just littered with pie tins. Cause people wow. had come in dressed like the moon from mighty Boosh. Uh-huh. And, like, there was some... They've got, like, footage of it. It's probably in the documentary of, like, this woman, like, walking up to them and, like, crying while taking her clothes off. And they were like, oh, this is great. Like, they were, like, producers who were like, oh, we got to step in. And, like, she was crying while talking. And they were like, what's going on? And she was really just trying to get out that she wanted them wanted them to sign, like, her side so she can get it tattooed on herself. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it's, like, it's sort of just this... Like, it's not, like, to the level of the Beatles coming to the United States, but, like, kind of. Like, it, or at least that's how they perceived it coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, they expected it to just be, like, a couple of autograph signings. But it was, like, lines around the block signing things mm-hmm. for hours. Like, huge fans. People that wanted to get their names tattooed on them and wow. stuff, you know? it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what did you do for them? Um, I mean, a lot of what I did, I was, like, an intern. So, um, I created five shows. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, uh, what I did was... 
Um, you know, if you're an intern for a production company, you're like answering phones, you're getting people tea. Like, um, my big project was I was like editing, I edited like a sizzle reel for them for like this. It was like a documentary about a South African sketch group that they were like thinking about shopping around. Uh, maybe I'm not supposed to talk about, I don't know. This is, this is 2009. So whatever, who cares? Um, but, uh, yeah, it was like a documentary that they were doing about this like South African South African sketch group um, called I think Ridiculous, um, and they're uh, they're a really interesting story because like they like I don't know like making fun of the government is illegal in South Africa, right? And that's like what they did. So there would be a lot of situations like what they were doing was like legitimately dangerous, but they like kept doing it. And that's cool because that's you know ideally what comedy is. But mm-hmm. um, you know it's up punches. Um, but uh, so I was working on that, and then my big project was they were uh, one of their main shows is a show called Gavin and Stacy that was actually created by co-created by James Corden, and um, who's the host of you know late night shows and everything now. But this was before he was known in the states. This was when he was just you know British comedy guy, and they were coming up with the coming out with the third series of it, and this was shortly after. Lost released a video online, the creators of Lost, that was like everything that happened in Lost in six minutes or whatever, where they basically just like had a YouTube video where it was editing together all the beats of the the first however many seasons of Lost in six minutes. And they wanted to do like a similar thing for Gavin and Stacy. So that was basically what my, you know, intern job was is I essentially like wrote this and like, you know, put it together and or I you know, I didn't write it, I was taking previous footage, but you know putting it together in a way that made sense. And then, um, like, you know, it, it was posted on the BBC comedy, you know, their comedy section of their website. I don't think it's still up, but, um, it's one of those things where it's like cool, but also they got paid 10,000 pounds for it and I got paid nothing for it. Wow. Uh, but that's also just how it goes. And, And to their credit, they, they offered. They actually asked me if I wanted to uh, stick around. To um, they, they asked me if I wanted to stick around for pay to like finish working on it, um, which is something you don't really have to do with interns. And they were. It was a very lovely experience, and that's normal. When you're an intern, you do a lot of work like that that you're not paid for, but the experience of it is mm-hmm. you know how you're paid. Mm-hmm. But it's just funny to me that like oh you got ten thousand you got like ten thousand pounds, which at the time was like sixteen thousand dollars for this. <laughs> God, that's so much money that like as it, that's like what my student loans were for that trip. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like it was um, earnestly like a life changing experience, and um, something that was very nice about them that they didn't have to do is um, Henry Normal's door was always open, and I would always send him like a couple times I sent him just like very meek questions over email, even though he was ten feet from me with an open door of just like. Hey, it's Joey, the intern. Like, you know, and there's four people in the office, so he knows who I am. Like, uh, you know, like if you've got, you know, a spare five minutes in the next couple of weeks and you uh, are cool talking comedy with me, I got some questions. And like, I would send it, you know, very nervously. And then he would tap me on the shoulder three minutes later and invite <laughs> me to his office and we'd talk comedy for, you know, 30 minutes at a time. Wow. What, what kind of stuff would you talk about? I mean, a lot of it is, um, a lot of it's what I talked about earlier about kind of what his path was. Mm. So like, you know, the, that he worked in an office job until he was like 25. And then, um, you know, other things that he mentioned is, um, he's got like, this is something that is going to be infuriating listeners. He's got like, 
a theory of three things that um, basically makes for a successful comedian. And I vaguely remember them. So if you're listening to this, this is going to be maddening. Uh, one of them, I think, is like... One of them is like, I think, just like hard work, like work ethic. Another one, I think, is like uh, something. Um, and the third one, <laughs> uh, and the third one is something that you referred to as sauce, which is sort of the X factor of like if somebody's funny or watchable or not. And um, yeah, and like he also talked about how like it's important to um, like it's important to try to push forward the art of comedy. That's like something that he really tried to stress to me is like, it's something that, you know, like in my experience, like I've been like a working writer since 2012, like there are some things that you write and some things that you make that are definitely just kind of checking boxes. And then there are other things that you make where it feels like you're kind of creating a new periodic element or at least trying to. And I think that though you know like there are a million jobs that you're going to have where your goal is just to do the thing um it's also important i think in your spare time to just try new things and like do things that you maybe haven't seen before or like do things that resonate with you personally as opposed to trying to ape what somebody else is doing um so yeah like we talked about that kind of thing a little bit he met he used the example of like he's friends with with um uh simon Pegg and uh was an Edgar Wright and um, like the point that he made with that is like Shaun of the Dead is a movie where um, it basically he took friends and he took Night of the Living Dead and combined those worlds and what's great about it is that it's a deconstruction of both it's like both a deconstruction of the relationships of the show friends and a deconstruction of Night of the Living Dead while also being a very good zombie movie and a very funny movie so like it's things like that where it's like that you could definitely there were comedic zombie movies before that but like I feel like that's the first one that like wasn't just a zombie movie with jokes right like you know the return of the living dead it's like you know the zombies say like brains or whatever it's like there are beats that are meant to be comedic but Shaun of the Dead I feel is the first that was like it, it is both a comedy it's not just a horror movie with jokes or a comedy with a jump scare it's mm-hmm. like both successfully yeah exactly I was actually thinking about that when I saw I saw Baby Driver and it's so funny because I feel like he's been destruct he's been deconstructing like the police the you know Hot Fuzz yeah and in um, uh, what's the one the third one that came out Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, and World's End. Yeah, World's End. He's he's been doing that stuff, and now he's just doing. This one's like a very straight, uh, like uh, heist movie, and he like nails it. I think it's because he's like had that practice, which is interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw Baby Driver. It was really good. Um, I think it's funny how much controversy there is. Weirdly about that. What's the controversy? Is that that he's? It's like uh, I've heard like it's polarizing. Yeah, it's just a movie that like um, a friend of mine um, I think posted it recently of like posted on Twitter of like. Like they're they're going to base like the next people person they meet they're going to base their self worth on if they liked or didn't like Baby Driver. <laughs> I think it's just a movie that yeah like people some people really love and some people really hate mm-hmm. and um, I can get both sides of it. Like the love is that it's a very good heist movie with <laughs> a lot of cool car chases and a great soundtrack <laughs> and the hate I think is I think there are some people that are like it's like 
a largely it's like not a very diverse cast. Yeah, yeah. And like the the female characters are very largely kind of like the on, the ingenue and stuff like that. Yeah. That's definitely the worst part of the movie is like the relationship of those two, baby yeah. and the I forgot her name. Oh, yeah. Deborah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and like, but I mean, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Like, mm-hmm. it was fun, but like, I could see where the criticism came from. But I feel like it's one of those movies where like weird. It's like. Uh, it's like the SNL David S. Pumpkins sketch mm-hmm. where like people feel the need to defend their opinion of, on it when it's like ultimately, I don't know, like yeah. it's uh, enjoy it or don't enjoy mm-hmm. it. Good job putting it back to comedy. Uh, so after college, you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. So uh, you said you had like job interviews from like alumni groups. Yes. Uh, did you get one of those jobs or? Um, yeah. So uh I interviewed for a lot of PA jobs. Um, I was, uh, by a lot, I mean one PA job, which I... So, I'm somebody that's, like, I'm sort of risk-averse a little bit. Like, I'm... Like, I'm weary to take chances, but there are ways that I can take chances if I kind of self-justify. So, an example of that would be... I moved to Los Angeles, like, my big, like, I gotta pack my bags and move was I had a job interview to be a PA on a show, like, the following week. So, like, that's just a very practical thing. It's like, oh, I've gotta move to Los Angeles to do this job interview, because if I get the job, I have to live there. And, um, I did not get the job, and I had, like, very little money in my bank account. I was, like, living on my brother's couch. I had, like, basically, like, no other options, but... Um, while I was in Los Angeles, I just made it a point to kind of, you know, catch up with as many friends as possible, get coffee with alumni, kind of anybody that would meet with me. And um, one of those people um, was friends with another alumni who's uh, who created the show Scare Tactics. Or co-created okay, it. Yeah. It's just a, you know, a, like a hidden camera prank show on the Sci-Fi Network. And um, they needed a new executive assistant for the next season of Scare Tactics that was coming up. And as thing as things tend to kind of tend to go in Los Angeles in the entertainment industry, and this still happens to me. This happened to me a month ago. Um, I got a call letting me know that the job existed um, at 11 a.m. and then they wanted to have a meeting with me at 1 p.m. So I like I remember I like it was laundry day, so I was wearing like just ridiculous laundry day clothes. I went in for the meeting. Um, and then, like, the interview went well. And then afterwards, I got a call at 5 p.m. saying, this is Friday, you got the job, and you start Monday. <laughs> so I went from zero options, like, oh, gee, like, I don't know, like, looking at, like, game stops near where my brother lived, and to, like, oh, now I've got this cool, like, job that's probably higher than I should get when I first <laughs> yeah, moved yeah. here. So, so you were uh, an executive assistant? Yeah. So did you do... Uh, any writing as part of that? Yeah, I mean, luckily, like, they they knew that I wanted to be a writer, and they, like, that company and those people were very specifically, like, I don't know, they, they like moving people up. So, um, like, very shortly after I started, I was, like, in pitch meetings for Scare Tactics, and actually I wrote... A, like I wrote a bit for Scare Tactics season three. It's um, the first thing I've ever written that got on television. Features a guy getting shot in the back, <laughs> um, and you know it's a it's a prank show. So you're not like you're not 
writing final draft scripts it's like you're kind of writing the beats that you want kind of what the what's called the mark to uh the mark or the person that's being pranked to kind of follow and then the actors kind of try to guide them along that path and um then i also wrote like a couple of scare tactics video blogs like a web series for tracy morgan which was really cool oh wow um yeah these are all things where it's like i feel very fortunate to get that opportunity you know immediately upon moving here mm-hmm. i mean like a month after moving here mm-hmm. um and, uh, yeah, from there, like, I wanted to get involved in the comedy community, so I um, I basically, like, was asking my bosses, like, you know, what uh, what do comedy people do? And a lot of them suggested taking classes places, and they said that UCB was sort of the cool place at the moment. This was 2010. And um, so I started taking classes there. That job finished up at, like, the end of that year. And then I basically just kind of this was immediately after the financial collapse so like kind of uh, collected unemployment looked for work and wrote sketch comedy and did that Mm -hmm. with both feet for you know uh probably a year or two you know i got like another admin assistant job at just like some internet startup and used the time there to like you know do even more sketch and then like that just that and like being very involved with sketch sort of started to lead into writing jobs and opportunities and stuff so when you when you first started taking sketch classes, uh, like how from I mean you've seen SNL and stuff. But yeah. Like were you that familiar with like how a sketch structured and like with beats and stuff? So um, one of the college TV shows that I wrote for was a sketch show, but it's like college students doing sketch, so it's like it doesn't come from it comes from just kind of like oh this is kind of how they do it on SNL plus like whatever kind of small instincts that you built up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I. Like, I watched SNL a little bit growing up, you know, um, like, The State, Conan, things like that, and I was aware of the form, but I wasn't, like, intricately aware of the blueprint of it. You know, if you do two beats and then a rest beat and then a button, and that's a sketch. And, um, you know, I think that UCB sketch classes were very helpful with that, um, with just giving you, like, a very solid... Um, a very solid blueprint to like build a sketch that is structurally sound and um, yeah so before that I wasn't I was aware of sketch and I watched sketch but I wasn't necessarily like a student of the game by mm-hmm. any means uh, and, and you're someone who's taken multiple sketch classes like at different theaters right? yeah I um, I've gone through the whole program at UCB and what at the time was the Miles Stroth Workshop and is now the Pack Theater. And then I also, um, there was a thing called Sketch Guild, which uh, Ryan Hitchcock and Dave Christensen created that was around for a couple of years where it was just every week they would bring in a different sketch coach or mod writer or whatever that would give kind of a room of whoever wanted to notes on their sketches. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was good. It was a good, um, it was a good resource and I would just do that every week. Um, and then I also took, like, Kevin McDonald uh, from Kids in the Hall. I had, like, a weekend-long sketch workshop that I did. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's pretty much it as far as my formal sketch training goes. But, like, you know, I've also, like, I've written for shows. That, like, like I was on house teams at I.O. and I've written for shows at Second City and the Groundlings, mm-hmm. too. So it's, like, you kind of go everywhere. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Uh, what are like the differences in these theaters 
like in terms of uh, in terms of sketch because I know improv I think is kind of widely known kind of the differences yeah. but sketch people don't really talk about that as much okay so um, uh, let's see the way that I kind of break it down for people is that UCB is largely for writer performers and places like the Groundlings and Second City are more for performer writers mm-hmm. um, there's more of a focus at UCB of like having a sketch that's well written and I think that it, in the Groundlings and Second City it's more sketches that are well performed um, and not that there aren't sketches at UCB that are well performed yeah. there are a lot of great performers at UCB um, it's just I feel like it kind of starts from the script I guess um, and like you know Second City like the way that they do a lot of it and I've I haven't taken any Second City classes so I'm 100% maybe I'm making this up I don't know <laughs> But uh, Second City, it's like you start by kind of improvising a scene and then you kind of you write the good bits down. So you start from the performance and then write it. Um, Whereas UCB, it's like you start from the script. Um, The Groundlings, I'm not super familiar with, but, um, you know, I like I Groundlings people tend to be known as very strong performers. So, like, I think that I've always thought of the Groundlings as more of the actor focused school whereas UCB is more of the writer focused school um, and that's uh, you know like you can even have from like class breakdown of like UCB up until recently didn't have character classes it was just writing classes and then you get on mod night mm-hmm. so it tended to be just the best improvisers would get on mod night right um, and then um, what the pack has going for it is um, I mean like I'm I, I'm friends with Money Penny and like all uh, all the guys there, so I mean this with love. But the pack is like, it's a little bit more focused on spectacle. Um, like the the better way to put that is that um, Money Penny quotes this a lot is that is the Johnny Carson quote of whatever you do, don't bore them. And I feel like the pack is very much that mentality. So you get a lot of sketches that are based around really cool set pieces and like I feel like this is something I mean this is we're already in deep nerd territory but uh, (laughs) so like I've written on Mod Night I've written on Pack Sketch Teams and I feel like in terms of just the level of heightening um, what would be a halfway show tent pull at the pack would be a closer for Mod Night okay yeah that kind of explains just like how like how the different theaters treat kind of heightening and blowing out ideas and stuff like that. And that's something that like, you know, I can only really speak to my own experiences is I feel like I got a lot out of doing both. Um, UCB, I think gave me a very solid groundwork in just how to write a sketch, like justifying, like, you know, establishing the game on the first page and all that stuff, which is like a very solid blueprint for how to write a sketch. And I feel like the pack um, gave me a very solid groundwork in if you're building a house, how to paint that house so, like, how to write sketches mm. that are interesting. Yeah. Um, like, that's something that I think is to the pack's benefit right now is, um, like, everybody that teaches there has a very, very, very distinct voice. It's, you know, Sam Brown from Rise Kids, you know, Eric Moneypenny from The Midnight Show. Um, and, like, UCB, it's like, UCB teachers are good, and they've got a curriculum which is very good, but, like, because it's sort of a curriculum, it's like you're not necessarily getting like necessarily the teacher's like full voice. It's like they're teaching a curriculum. 
Mm-hmm. Not that there isn't a curriculum with Pack or anything. It's just I feel like because Money Penny wrote the curriculum with Sam and they're teaching it, mm-hmm. it's like they it feels like it's closer to them. Yeah, it's it's a. I would definitely agree with that. It's like a much. I've taken classes both at ECB and the Pack. Oh yes, you know how it goes. Yeah, and, uh, and they're both great, and they're both like they're both very good. Like it's all just tools for your tool belt. You yeah. Know? I actually think they kind of, they're like a good complement to each other, I think. Especially, oh, 100%. Especially yeah. if you do UCB first, then the pack. It's yeah, like, it's that's perfect. Exactly right. Yeah, it's just, that is kind of frustrating though about UCB is that because of the way it works, because it's like a set curriculum that it's like very much all the teachers adhere to, that it is harder. It is, it does feel like you're getting less, maybe, of a, uh, I don't know. It does feel like there's certain barriers. I don't know. Like you're not getting quite the, uh, individual note, maybe sometimes. Yeah, like I think that um, or the stylistic note, maybe. Yeah, I guess that like, like I took UCB and then PAC, and I, I really think that that was like a good move because, and I, it's something that I always suggest whenever I, whenever I talk to people at the PAC that have only taken PAC classes, I always try to say like, oh, you should take UCB classes, or whenever I talk to somebody at UCB that's only taken UCB classes, I always suggest getting involved with the PAC, like. Mm-hmm. There was a guy earlier today that I was, he's doing stuff at UCB and IO and I was trying to push him toward pack stuff just because mm-hmm. it's like, there's a, I feel like the good thing about the pack is that you see voice in action a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, and this is, this is all, uh, this is, maybe this will get me in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> I've already told people exactly how much the company was paid for a thing 10 years ago. <laughs> um, but, uh, I feel like. Um, like, oh, I was so busy doing a bit that I forgot what my point was. Um, like, I feel like um, at UCB, like there is, there's definitely like an adherence to the curriculum, and it's more of a focus of is this, like, is this uh, adherent to the curriculum. Yes, it's yeah. it's sort of like does does this fo- does this follow the the blueprint that we built? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think that especially when you're new, that's great. That's like exactly what you want. Is like is this like is this textbook? And that's something that like Besser and a lot of people talk about in interviews is like their like game isn't a blanket rule that exists a boilerplate rule that exists for all time. It's like. Game is game is something that allows, and this is a Besser quote. I'm not speaking out of school. Game is something that allows somebody that maybe isn't inherently funny to kind of follow these steps to be funny or create a successful joke or a scene or a sketch or whatever. And I feel like with um, the pack, because there's less of a strict blueprint. Like Money Penny has his five sketch types and stuff like that. But, like, Money Penny, I think, was the first teacher that really nailed down, like, yeah, but is it funny? And I think that that's something that is very valuable to learn as a student, is that, like, you can write a sketch that's textbook that isn't funny, mm-hmm. and you can write a sketch that's not textbook that is funny. And, like, I think that when you're a new student, you get fairy in your head about, like, just the, the, the minutiae and the details of it. And, um, you know, and I think that that's good when you're first starting out, but Money Penny and Sam and a lot of those guys are very good at like, it's okay if you kind of bend this rule, if it's funny, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, don't necessarily look at it as, uh, I did the homework assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, because I, I mean, I feel like like I've read packets for you know various theaters and you know jobs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's like I feel like you can see a pack. You can tell when you read a packet, and it feels like oh, this is somebody's sketch two hundred one packet because it's like I did the homework assignment. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, like oh, yep, that's three sketches that are each less than four pages that establish a game on page one and heighten them. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not like funny. It's just. It's just like you, you know, you followed the blueprint, right? I remember in my uh, my sketch one hundred and one class, uh, the first class, I wrote a really weird sketch. I can't really remember it, huh. but it was it was bad too. Yeah, and there wasn't a clear game. And I remember uh, the teacher's like, "Hey, this is weird. Uh, it's kind of place, places, but like it's no game." So, like, it's hard to kind of work with this. And so, he, like, then we start talking, we, you know, he's like, well, we, we ended up figuring something yeah, out. He, like, lit up a cigarette, and he was yeah. like, let me, like, listen, kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the next class, I brought in a sketch, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast a couple times, called uh, Professional Babysitter, and it was just, like, a babysitter uh, who was, like, she would, like, have a credit card machine and stuff. So, it'd be like, yeah. So, yeah. And they're like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> and I was like... Uh, it's okay. Like, it wasn't... I didn't think it's yeah. that funny, but it was very much, like, that uh, textbook. Yeah, like, you follow the rules. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, I remember thinking that was, like, an important distinction to make then after that class. And it's... As I've done more sketch, I've started to kind of realize, oh, okay, this is what I think is really funny. Yeah. As opposed to just, like, following the rules. Yeah, I think that... I think that you can find... You can do what you think is funny within the rules. Mm-hmm. Like, um... Like, it's, like, I feel like it's it's very important to, I mean, I don't know, like, the great thing about game and the great thing about UCB is that it gives you, um, it gives you, like, an encyclopedia of terms to, that you can use to kind of critique each other's work. So, like, that's something that, like, I've used on, like, jobs where it's just like, oh, the, you know, the this line is off game, like, this third beat feels like it could heighten more, like, this button, like, blah, 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 you know, um... And, like, uh, it's important to know the basics and it's important to be able to follow the basics. But, like, you know, like you were saying, like, professional babysitter, that's like, yeah, that's like, that sounds like a sketch premise. It's Mm -hmm. like, but it sounds like a sketch premise that's like following a homework assignment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the benefit to the weird sketch that you wrote before that is, like, now you could look at that sketch and figure out what you thought was funny about it. And write a super weird sketch, but that just follows the framework, you know? Oh, yeah. I should go back and look at it again. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, figure out it's what like you thought was funny about it. like two years ago, but yeah. Yeah, like, figure out what you thought was funny about it, mm-hmm. and then take another crack at it, just knowing how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's something that, like, the more that you do comedy, the more that you're able to kind of pick up, like... I mean, this is, like, way too heady, but, like, what societal thing the sketch is about, like, what The Onion calls the comedic truth of it. Right, yeah. And um, then, or, like, like I like I direct a lot of sketch teams and shows, and I coach a lot, and, like, the, there's a lot of, like, okay, like, what is funny about this to the writer? And then once you figure that out, then you can sort of pitch and heighten on that, as opposed to, like... I don't know, this is just a mess. Like, yeah. Or like, oh, there are two different games going here. Or what was your, like, an, what, like, made you laugh about this pitch? When you direct sketch, is that the first thing you look for? 
Um, the first thing I look for is if they're Venmo transaction clear. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, that's not how Venmo works. <laughs> yeah. um, it's instant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's instant. Yeah, like, uh, also, why would I have people pay me at the start of the meeting? <laughs> yeah. Really, there's a lot of that joke is not sound. Um, so, uh, basically, I mean, it depends with Sketch because there are, you know, there's writing meetings and then there's meetings where you put things kind of on their feet. Mm. Um, like there are different stages to directing a sketch show than just you know showing up and doing it. Right. Um, if it's a writing meeting, um, you know the first thing that I'm focusing on is is it funny, and then if it doesn't play, I try to figure out why, and then from there you kind of you do any kind of triage that you can do. So it's like, um, you know, is it that there isn't a justification because that that happens like oftentimes where you might have a sketch that doesn't get any laughs but if you add like one justification line to like page one that could be like all the difference um or like are there too many games going on like um you know it's just is it funny or not if it is then it's basically just pitching jokes to try to make it a little bit better or if it's just not working it's trying to figure out why it's not working Mm -hmm. and then just digging in and you know putting the screws to it as it were would you say uh directing sketch has made you better as a sketch writer yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that um, it's given me the ability to kind of note my own ideas. So I can write something and then step away from it and then look at it as like a director and figure out, oh, this plays because of this, this plays because of this, this doesn't work because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's like it's uh, largely the teams that I direct are all very strong but like it's um, like being able to pinpoint what's wrong with the sketch is very useful in your own writing Yeah. Um, and also like you know something that uh, as comedy writers we're kind of creating a uh, like a Wiki- an internal Wikipedia for ourselves of what works and what doesn't work <laughs> and just the more you see the more you add to that Wikipedia of like Oh, like, uh, this sketch that I directed didn't work because of this. So, like, if I write a sketch that's similar in tone, that's, like, I should be aware of that. And also just be aware of it. Like, oh, that sketch has been done. You know, don't do that sketch because mm-hmm. it's already been done before. I like the idea of, like, the eternal Wikipedia. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, like, that's something. It's just your ability to be, like, hired as a comedy writer is, like, I feel like you're being hired for your intuition. You're being hired for, like... You're being hired for, like, kind of the gut feeling that you get of if something's funny or not. And, like, the more that you... And I don't know. To me, like... Specifically, sketch is sort of all about rhythms. It's, like... I mean, I've done it... I've gotten straight to the point of, like... So, the way that this sketch works is it's, like, three straight man lines, an unusual thing, four straight man lines, an unusual thing, three... You know, it's, like... Mm -hmm. Or... Like, there are sketch types where it's just, like, a page of dramatic setup to a stupid turn. Right. And it's all kind of... It's all, like, a little bit of the same melody. Like, um... And that's something that you can just be aware of on writing jobs. Of, like, what, like... You know, like, rhythms that you've done before that work. Or, like, you know, like like I said, kind of going into, like... The societal truth of what something is about. Like... Like, uh, I wrote for the CBS Diversity Showcase um, a little bit, like, in 2013. 
and I had a sketch that I'd previously written about Batman that I just made about Jay Z. And <laughs> it's like it like the like the the bones of the sketch were the exact same of like it's you know it's three straight it's like three two straight people and one unusual person and um it's just all of the batman specifics were replaced with jay-z specifics so instead of them talking about the joker they talked about flavor flav you know yeah interesting okay and it's like it still worked because it's like the just like the structure of it was sound Hmm. um and that's you know i think that that's something that just the more that you do comedy, the more that you kind of like develop those kinds of things and you see what, what you've done before that works and what you've done before that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And like things that can kind of be, uh, like things that can be not reused, but it's just like things that are time tested a little bit. Right. Uh, okay. I've got another kind of big question, difficult question. Uh, how much have things changed in comedy in LA since you got here? Um, okay. So I got here in the, the dusty sepia tone past of 2010. <laughs> uh, I started taking UCB classes August 2010. Um, I think that the big change, I'm more of a sketch guy than an improv guy. I like did improv um, like pretty hard for like three months until I took my first sketch class and I was like oh never mind uh, improv like sketches the th- sketch writing is the thing I should focus on it's funny, I love doing improv but I hate acting yeah which like, is you know which makes my improv much worse because yeah, I don't like, like acting like I'm a bad I'm like not a good actor and I'm yeah. horrible at emotionally committing in scenes um, but uh, I think that the big difference is opportunity when I started when I took my first sketch class in January of 2011 the only opportunity to do sketch in Los Angeles was Mod Night or The Groundlings. So, like, I think that there was Not Too Shabby, which at this point there was only one theater, one UCB theater, and 40 people submitted a week for, like, three available slots. Wow. So, like, you had to submit three weeks in a row to even get get a slot. And um, then there was, like... Like I think Room One Hundred and One back when that was an indie improv show, once a month did a uh, like a show called like Sketch Slam or something where they had thirty minutes of Room One Hundred and One set aside for sketch, um, like, and then there was like Top Story Weekly and um, a show called Second City this week, which was a weekly topical sketch show at Second City, but like there wasn't, there just wasn't the scene for it that there is now. So like, when I got started, I. I couldn't immediately get onto a PAC team or an IO team or like a DCT team or whatever. I basically like finished sketch 201, met a guy at an improv show who was writing for top story in second city this week, started doing that for like, uh, probably like three or four months or something. And then because there wasn't really the scene for it, I really wanted to have like a group of people that met every week and paid a director just to give us notes on stuff. And that took me like a year to even cobble together five other people that like were serious enough about sketch comedy to do that. And that was like posting on the UCB message boards. And like, like this was before there was even an LA comedy network or anything. And, um, yeah, like it took me a year to even get that. And then, yeah, like, uh, now there's, house sketch teams at the Nerdist and the Groundlings has like three stages and 
There's main stage sketch teams at IO and DCT teams. There's at the time there were only six mod teams. Now there's eight mod teams plus an inner sanctum. Like not too shabby is like not as hard to get into as it was when there were 40 people submitting every week. There's also like go sketch yourself. There's there's just like when I was doing it, if you wanted to do sketch and like really wanted to do it, there was really only the opportunity to put up sketch maybe once or twice a month. Like, whereas now you could put up a sketch like several times a night, you know, over the course of a week. And like, there's just more opportunity to test out your stuff. And because of that, like that side of the scene's a little bit bigger. Like, I think that the pack has become probably um, one of the top sketch theaters in town in terms of just sketch. And they're also, you know, Miles Roth is great and there's also a good improv scene. But like, you know, like I think that when I was doing it, I was more the odd duck in doing sketch comedy and focusing on sketch writing. And now there's tons of people doing it. Um, and like, I guess because of that, because there's more opportunity, I feel like there are, I mean, it's tough. It's like, I want to say that I see it more with improv where like, it used to be a fight to even get one improv show like you know every couple of months for your improv team and now there's a million improv shows so like people bail on shows more and people kind of phone in shows a little bit more and like I think that that's the case with sketch a little bit more in that like it used to be like oh like I got a spot at not too shabby I just got like the Willy Wonka golden ticket like I'm going to call my friends and family to come to UCB at midnight (laughs) to like watch me do a weirdly sold out sketch open mic where I'm like opening for Charlene Yee and immediately after the birthday boys, like, and now I feel like people just like bail on shows a little bit quicker because like there, it's no longer this like rare commodity to even be able to do it. Yes. Do do you think, uh, sketch, the quality of sketches overall maybe gotten a little that worse because as the scenes got diluted, maybe. I mean, I think that like, I guess you could say that maybe the if you were there are significantly more people doing sketch, so by virtue of that, maybe the average sketch has gotten worse. But I also think that the best sketches have gotten better. Like mm. I think that, um, like I think that the sketch shows that you see as a whole now are probably on average of a much higher quality than they were just because there's so many more people doing it and so many people are doing everything. Like, um, like I remember like, I don't know when I, when I, uh, submitted for mod night the first time, like IO sketch wasn't a thing. Now it's like, so like if you got on a mod team, there was probably a pretty good chance that you'd never been on a sketch group before. Now, through TPT, Nerdist, IO, Groundlings, and etc., like, you've probably, by the time you've gotten on a mod team, shaken off so much of the, like, early jitters, and you've probably been on multiple sketch groups at this mm. point. So, like, I think that because there are more people doing it, like, maybe the average sketch has gotten worse just by virtue of it being diluted. But I think that so many... the the once you get out, once you like kind of get away from just newbies, people that have been doing it, people that just took Sketch 101 or whatever, like the average writer performer is stronger. Mm. Like once you get to the people that are like actually doing it. Yeah, that and makes that's sense. Because there's just more opportunity to do it. Yeah, more reps. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that like I've noticed where like I'll direct teams and like I'll see, you know, I mean, there are, I got on Mod Night in 2013 and there are people that are like, 
not that there's like a theater hierarchy where one theater is better than another or whatever, but there are people that like I will coach on TPT teams or IO teams or people that will just send me their packets. And it's like, you would have gotten on a mod team in 2013. Mm. But on the same token, in 2013, there were six slots for writers every year as opposed to 30 this, you know, yeah. now. Like, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, it's always, uh, I think that like the future of sketch in Los Angeles is bright in a talent level, but there are also less people going to shows because there are so yeah. many shows. But that's, I think, like an across the board comedy community thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like your show needs to have a little bit more of like a hook to um, draw people as opposed to just being an indie improv show or an indie sketch show or whatever. Uh, okay, we nerded out for so long on that that I'm going to have to skip some stuff. <laughs> so, Joey worked uh, for Cracked. Yeah. Uh, he made a, a Kanye West Christmas parody album called Creases. Yeah, I made that with uh, local business comedy, Stephen Perlstein, Nick Luger, uh, Carl Tart, very funny yeah. guy, was the, our Kanye. Uh, we're not going to talk about it. It's okay. Uh, that was years ago, that's fine. But one thing I do want to talk about is that you do a lot of internet uh, bits. Like uh, internet oh, yeah, we're talking now or now we're really... Now, you can delete everything before this. Now we're really <laughs> going to do it. Yeah. I, maybe... Would you consider that... I guess it's performance art, really. I mean, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just bits, bro. <laughs> what, what inspired you to do that kind of stuff? Um... So, really, it's just... I don't know. It's doing what I think is funny. Like, I think that... Um, if you're a sketch comedian, you should be making videos and content for the internet because it's a free distribution platform that can get your name out there. And you're more likely to get hired off of a funny sketch video that you made than a million black box theater sketch shows because you can send a link and it's very easy to do. And um, for me, it's just like the opportunities through like Cracked and stuff like that were they're more plentiful and easy to do from your living room than necessarily like having the right connections to write for, you know, even like a live sketch show. So um, I feel like the thread would probably be like uh, making sketches, making a ton of sketches through, you know, my mod team, my, you know, my TPT team, my IO team, doing a lot of video sketches. I think that like Creases would probably be like a little bit of a light bulb thing for me of like, that's something that we made. I remember Nick Ligger specifically uh, saying this very conscious of what the BuzzFeed headline would be. Mm. So like, that's something that we were talking about of like, Oh, should we just do one song? Should we just do like an EP? And like something that just Nick very regularly said is like, no, like the news story is these guys parodied the entire Kanye West Jesus album. Not they, here's a funny parody of black skinhead or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like they did the whole album. And, um, that sort of led to me writing for like a bunch of comedy websites and stuff like that. And from there, I don't know. I I guess that I just, a lot of what I do is just like, it's just following what I think is a funny idea. And with my experience working for internet, like there is a little bit of, Oh, that's a funny idea. And like, here's sort of why it would do well. And that's the marketing stuff that you shouldn't really pay attention to. But, like, a lot of what you learn, um, you know, creating content for the Internet is, like, or making anything is, like, who is this for? So, like, probably one of my first, like, bit bits that I did sort of on my own as just a kind of as just a goof would be. I mean, I was doing, like, I did stuff, like, 
I worked at this place called Guff where we had to make Facebook pages to ta- to attach to our articles, like Facebook fan pages. And I just thought it was funny if, like, I said, oh, if, if my page gets 100 Facebook likes, I'll punch my friend Joe Porter and get it on camera. <laughs> so it did. My friend Joe Porter, who worked there, too, you know, he said that that was fine. I got 100 Facebook likes, and I got a picture of me punching him in the face. <laughs> and then the natural height into that is, oh, if I got 500 Facebook likes, I should be able to hit him with my car. Uh-huh. And I asked Joe Porter, and he said, sure, why not? So I got 500 Facebook likes, and I got a video of me hitting him with my car and posted that online. Like, you just, like, tap him, or...? Uh, okay, so this is pulling behind the curtain. So I basically idled, and then yeah. he jumped on the hood, because he's a trained stuntman, because he's uh, Hollywood, okay. and everybody's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so he jumped off the hood and flipped off of it, and then I just sped it up and then added an, an impact sound effect. So, oh, wow. Like, I basically took the impact sound effect from him jumping my on my hood, played that at normal speed, and put that at the impact point. And then um, sped up the video so it looked like I was going like 25 Sick. and just obliterated yeah. him. And there are still people that think that I really hit a man going full speed with my car. <laughs> this is, of course, very interesting to listen to. But um, <laughs> but then, um, so like, I feel like I was always, like, I've been doing just stuff like that for a little while of like, just, this is a fun bit. But um, last year I started... Um, the great thing about working for internet companies, especially internet comedy websites, is there are people that are within feet of you that you could take off your headphones and say, hey, is this funny? And they could say, yeah, that's funny or no, that's not funny. So I just started doing that. Like just, hey, like, I, like I'd grown a beard for six months at, at like that point, And I was thinking like, oh, it'd be really funny if I like shaved my beard off, but like mailed it to people. So I posted on Facebook like, Hey, I'm going to shave off my beard. If you want me to mail it to you, like post your address in the comments. And then my friend Jesse Klein posted, you should mail it to Ted Cruz, uh, who Ted Cruz, politician, uh, (laughs) A-plus American. Really good dude. And um, I, so I posted on Facebook, like, oh, if this gets 200 Facebook likes, I'll mail my beard to Ted Cruz. And it did, and I did. And, uh, like, I think that a lot of what I do is sort of following the natural thread of an idea. So, um, like, uh, I, around when, um, I think it was like, there were like, there was that concert thing that was getting really popular where people would post bands doing concerts at dumb places. So like Limp Biscuit doing a concert in a gas station or whatever. Um, this was like a popular thing on Facebook last year. So I was trying to figure out how to heighten that. So I created an event that was like Smash Mouth is going to play a concert in the dumpster behind Gelson's. <laughs> Because I figured it's, like, heightening because it's, like, a less likely location. And as those things did, it blew up. It got, like, you know, a couple thousand people said that they were going. And then I thought it would be really funny just following the thread of that. Of If I, like, got a Steve Harwell impersonator to show up <laughs> and do a concert. And then if you're going to do that, why not live stream it? So I did that. I promoted that it was going to happen. I put, like, maps to Gelson's. And, like, we put on, like, a fake concert with a Steve Harwell impersonator. And then um, afterwards, just because, like, genuinely people I didn't know showed up, (laughs) like a dozen just random people showed up expecting a concert or just not knowing what they were going to see. So I got, like, a group picture of all the people that showed up with the Steve Harwell impersonator. And, like, what's the height on that is, like, oh, I should post that on Reddit Mm -hmm. with the tagline being, I I said I was doing a fake Smash Mouth concert and the real Steve Harwell showed up. (laughs) And it got to, like, the front page of Reddit. It got, like, I don't know, like a couple hundred thousand views in, like, a day. And then people started to realize, wait a second, Steve Harwell isn't in his 20s. <laughs> and like, um, but that's just, like, following the thread of the idea. So, like, um, 
And like, I think that that's something that's kind of been my, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like comedic superpower is that I like, I'm not afraid to commit to things I think are funny. And I think that doing bits online is just a natural extension of that. Mm -hmm. So like, um, like I host a podcast called 25 minutes of silence where the premise is that a guest and I just sit in silence for 25 minutes. Um, What's funny to me about that is getting getting people that people would want to talk to on the show and not talking to them. So I got like a presidential candidate, you know, in November. I got uh, a former astronaut who like held the record for the longest time in space for a while. I got like the lead singer of the President's United States of America, who is one of my favorite bands as like a middle schooler that... I had a million questions for and did not ask him because that's not what the show is. And um, then, you know, like, what's a heighten on that is to do a live one. So we did, like, a live one at the pack, like, in December. And, like, now I think, like, oh, like, the the next heighten on that would be to shoot, like, a video, to, like, shoot a video yeah. one and, like, do a very good job producing it. Um so yeah, it's just doing things that I'm funny and then like following the thread of the idea and mm-hmm. seeing where it goes. And, you know, uh, like it's just a thing I enjoy doing yeah. and it's literally like, you know, like I'm a comedy writer, I write pilots, I write, you know, packets for things and stuff like that. But like, I take so much joy from just internet bits that it's literally on my to-do list for the year to like do like eight of them. <laughs> So, like, uh, I just finished the, uh, uh, this is maybe too specific for listeners of this show, like, SNL, like, Saturday Night Live submissions were a few days right. ago, yeah. and um, a, a bunch of my friends submitted, and I submitted a couple times, and I didn't get on, so I was like, I wasn't going to submit this year, but then I told one of my friends, oh, it'd be really funny if I just took the David S. Pumpkins sketch and then rewrote it five times, so it was like, David S. Fireworks, David S. Christmas Tree, <laughs> and then one of my friends was like, oh, that's really funny, you should actually do that. So I actually did it. I actually submitted it. I expect that I'm blacklisted from ever submitting this all again. But it made a bunch of people laugh. And now mm-hmm. there are a bunch of Saturday Night Live writers and producers on Twitter that liked it and shared it and mm-hmm. stuff. So it's like the core of like, is this a funny idea? That, is this a funny idea? Yes. Is it funny enough for me to put the work in? Sure. Like, And then it's figuring out how much work it would take and then really digging in if it's worthwhile, you know? So... Uh so these were these were all pretty successful bits. Uh, have you had ones that that didn't go as well? And like, do you know, like looking back, can you diagnose why they didn't go as well? Um, actually, I feel so douchey saying this. I've got a very high. <laughs> I've never had a. Um, I mean, I think that. Uh, so the Alamo has a Twitter account. Like, okay. remember, remember the Alamo. Yeah. Like, you know, like that the the place where the people died. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's only, like, 3,000 Twitter followers of it. <laughs> so, like, I thought it would be really funny to tweet at the Alamo every day, just, I remember you. <laughs> yeah. And I did it, like, two or three times, and nobody liked it. So I was like, ah, I'm going to bail on it. Oh, wow. Um, but, like, yeah, it's just funny to me that, like, remember the Alamo is such a thing, but they only have, like, 3,000 Twitter followers. Yeah. Um, so that's probably a less successful one that I bailed on. Um Let's see. There are oftentimes things turn into other things. So like I, for a little while I was really obsessed with the idea of, you know, Batman's the Joker, the character, the Joker from Batman of like, uh, 
for somebody that bases their entire aesthetic on comedy, we've never seen him do comedy. <laughs> That's true, yeah. We've never seen him do, like, a stand-up set. <laughs> so I was going to write and produce, like, a, like his comedy album. Oh, wow. So, like, what, what would, he, you know, his, yeah. what would his, like, you know, the, the, like, what would his, like, what would, if he released a comedy album, what would it be? And, um, like, what that morphed into is I just wrote a pilot that was, like, essentially his Louie. So, okay. like, so it kind of became, like, the start of it is he decides to quit crime and pursue stand-up comedy. So, for me, it's, like, that's not something that I... Now that I think about it, I probably should post it on the internet. That's not something that I have, like, posted online, but it's just, like, the idea of the Joker is a guy that bases his entire aesthetic on comedy, yeah. but we've never seen him do, like, a show. Uh-huh. Like, that kind of... That idea kind of went through a couple of different forms right. and then landed on writing a pilot of it. Uh-huh. Um, you should do something with that. That's great. Yeah, maybe I will at some point. Yeah. I mean, I wrote the pilot of it and I sent it to a bunch of people and their response was, you should not have written this. We, this is not sellable. <laughs> uh, which, fair. Um, yeah, you know, that's... that's I've got... Uh, not sure if this is cool or lame. I've got a bit board in my room <laughs> where I write... Like, if I get... If I just get an idea that I think is funny mm-hmm. or interesting, I'll write it on a note card and then tack it up on the bit board. <laughs> nice. And then just when I have free time, if I'm between jobs or if I'm just, like, bored... I'll pull something up the bit board and get to work on it. And like, that's still on the bit board. Maybe I'll do it at some point, mm-hmm. but it's like, eh, I don't know. Like I should probably, I've got other bits to do. Yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. a couple bits down the pile. That's great. Yeah. It uh, just, for, for me, it's just, if you think of a funny idea, do it. Like, you know, like it, that's like, that's, I think, that's, I think what's helped me in my career and helped me, you know, get noticed for jobs mm-hmm. and stuff like that is that like, like, I host a, a late-night show by and for people who love cats at UCB Sunset. And it's like, that could have just been a funny idea that I was like, oh, that's funny, and then forget about it. But no, I wrote it down and did it, and, like, produced it and put the work in. And, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's that's, I think, important when you come up with a funny idea. Is uh-huh. if, it's, if you think it's funny enough, do it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. I have a sketch idea, but maybe I did an internet bit. Ah, uh, and now we're in my territory. I did an internet bit like two months ago, maybe, and it went okay. But right, just, what, was, what was the bit? I'll pitch it to you, and then you. Ah, you, you okay, so uh, it was. It was. Uh, I made a Facebook page called Dank Swiffer Memes. Ah, that's funny. And uh, I, I like uh, said like I put like shared. So I, the first meme was me with my mom. And my mom had the Swiffer. Yeah. And then I was, like, doing a thumbs up to the camera. That's fun. And then I was, like, a family that Swiffers together stays together was, like, the caption yeah. thing. And then I wrote, like, hey, I just got hired to do uh, these dang Swiffer memes. Huh. Uh, so uh, every day there's going to be a new meme, and, and uh, I'm really excited to do this work. And so uh, that got, like, a bunch of likes. I think people weren't sure if I actually was hired to do uh, Swiffer memes. I, I love that wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I love the weight of the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Um, I think the next day I posted kind of like a normal meme. Like, it wasn't really, you know, it was like a, just a normal meme. I forget what it was. Yeah. And then after that, I started saying, like, oh, I love, uh, I love, uh, doing the Swiffer. When I'm Swiffer, when I'm using my Swiffer, I love listening to podcasts. And then, like, the podcast was the Bill O'Reilly podcast. Huh. And then, then it slowly got more, like, conservative as, like, I was, like, joining the alt right in these Swiffer memes. Oh, uh, that's funny. 
Uh, and I think it ended with me getting. I like the last one was like me getting fired for putting political messages in the Swiffer memes. That's funny. Uh, and it went okay. <laughs> uh, so would you? What would you say to that? Would you say like? Uh, was there like a better way to do that? I guess was it maybe I did it all over the course of a week. Maybe I should have. I don't know. Spread it out more. I mean, I feel like that's a successful bit. Yeah, I think that. Um, like uh, like every bit that you do like whether it gets you know 300 likes or a thousand retweets that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean it's successful or not Mm -hmm. like um, I think that what's important is did it make you laugh yeah and like um, like there's a bit that I did that um, I did this before the Ted Cruz thing it is before I even got any comedy jobs or any comedy website jobs like staffed um like i i like i had this old laundry hamper from college it was one of those that kind of like accordion out and um this was 2005 and i graduated in 2009 so it's like you know it's like beat up it's like very much like it's just like a a very like it's Every time that I would look at it, it would make me feel bad about where I was in my life. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'm still using yeah. this cheap, like, reusable laundry hamper from college. So I finished a job, went to Ikea, and bought just the most expensive and nice laundry hamper that I could. So I thought, oh, that'd be funny to kind of make this into a, an internet thing. So, like, I think that I posted just, like, tomorrow I'm really excited to buy a new laundry hamper. And then, like... <laughs> When I bought it, I got, like, a picture of it in my room and just, like, oh, like, this is a really, you know, like, oh, like, this, laundry, this like, you know, like, this Ikea, like, Hoon laundry hamper is just, like, really the best. And then um, the next day was Thursday, and I recorded it being rung up, and I posted that, the video of it being rung up as a throwback Thursday of, like, <laughs> and then I think Friday I posted, like, a picture of my new laundry hamper next to my old laundry hamper, mm-hmm. and it was just, like, remember in the classics. <laughs> and then I think, like, Saturday I posted, like, uh, a sign, like a sign on my lawn, on my old laundry hamper, like next to my garbage can, that was like free to a good home or something. <laughs> and um, my roommate, uh, a guy named Nick Legger, a uh, very funny guy, he started doing a different bit because, like, my laundry hamper looks like something that that snakes would live in. It's like wicker. <laughs> so he started calling me a snake terrorist and photoshopping <laughs> pictures of like snakes coming out of it. Yeah. So like, um, you know, that's something where. Did that get, like, a write-up from the AV club? No. But, like, it, I don't know. My family still talks to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, I think that... And I did another thing, um, another bit that, like, wasn't super successful, but I thought it was funny of, like... This was probably, like, last September. It was, like, a Facebook live stream called This Guy's Gonna Hold His Breath for 24 Hours. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I promoted it for a week with my friend Joe Porter. I got him to agree to do it. I, like, wrote, like, a jingle for it and, like, made a video that was, like, a... That was him being, like, hey, guys, Joe Porter here. I'm going <laughs> to hold my breath for 24 hours. And, um, like, we did a Facebook live stream. I, like, planned it out where it was, like... I planned it out so it was, like, a four-hour-long thing. The first... Within the first two minutes, he holds his breath and then he passes out and dies because you can't hold your breath yeah. for 24 hours. Five minutes after that... His, like, co-workers come in the room, and they're like, oh, God, he's dead. And then, like, they call the cops, and then, like, 45 minutes later, cops show up <laughs> and, like, start dusting for prints and stuff like that. 
an hour after that EMTs come in <laughs> and like carry the body off and an hour after that like a bunch of like people dressed in black come in and they do like a wake for him <laughs> and it's like that's that got you know peak 20 people watching it yeah but like I emailed out that I was doing it to like somebody that works at a production company and they were like that's real funny and then two weeks later they were like do you want to rewrite stuff for us we'll pay you money wow so it's like you know like just doing things that are funny on the internet like even if it doesn't go crazy viral it's still mm-hmm. like you entertained a hundred people or whatever yeah, you know? yeah yeah and like that's the type of thing where I think this is something that I always try to stress to people is like um anything can lead to a job mm-hmm. like I like I often tell people I was on Mod Night for two years. I've written for house teams at TPT and IO West. Um, I've gotten more work uh, hosting a podcast where a guest and I sit in silence for 25 <laughs> minutes than I ever got from like writing on all these house wow. teams. And that's just because it's like it's an easily quantifiable like you send somebody a link and they're like, yep, that's funny. Not that I consider, you know, all that time a waste or anything. I think that's great at building up chops. And it puts puts me in a situation where when I'm in the room, I do really well. Because I have, you know, experience writing on so many teams and stuff and with so many different people. But, like, you know, like, there's something to be said about just, like, making a funny thing that you think is funny. And, like, that's going to, you know, like your Swiffer meme thing. That's super funny. If Mm -hmm. I was in charge of the social media thing for a comedy site, I don't care if that went viral. I think it's funny. And, like, I'd give you a job. (laughs) Um, so just do stuff like that. Like yeah, follow, yeah, yeah. follow your joy, you know? Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, thanks for coming out. You, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, okay, so check out my podcast, 25 Minutes of Silence, podcast where guests and I sit in silence for 25 minutes, right here on BoardWalkAudio.com. Oh, yeah. And then um, the next, when is this coming out? Uh, probably two or three weeks from now. Okay, so if this comes out by July 29th, then come to the UCB Theater, UCB Sunset, July 29th at 7 p.m. to see Chats on Cats, a late-night talk show, by and for people who love cats. Um, if this came out after that, then sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, Chats on Cats. It's a monthly show at UCB, so there'll probably be more of them. Um, and follow me on Twitter, at Joeytainment. That's probably it. Also, pet a cat. Pet a cat. I don't know. All right, thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.